We stand in the Gospel of Christ. We have sang it, and now let's be reminded of it from His Word. If you will turn to Exodus chapter 12, we will continue our study this Lord's Day as we look at verses 1 through 13 of Exodus 12. If you have not been with us and you're a guest this morning, I'll give you a very brief summary of where we have been. The book of Exodus is a story of God's people who have been enslaved and in captivity in the land of Egypt for hundreds of years. They have cried out for deliverance and God has sent them a deliverer and a man named Moses. Moses, in going to Egypt, appears before Pharaoh and shares with him God's instruction. That Pharaoh is to let the people go. These Hebrews who have been his slaves. He is now to let them go that they might go freely worship and serve God. But Pharaoh will not do this. And so as you study the plagues in Egypt, you see that Pharaoh is a wicked king with a wicked heart. And as God brings calamity and suffering and plague upon him, his heart only grows harder. And he grows more determined not to obey God and not to allow the people to worship God. And so the intensity of these plagues increases until it comes to a point where God tells Moses there will be one final plague. The death of the firstborn. From the children to the livestock. Moses has delivered this message now to Pharaoh. And yet again, Pharaoh has refused to repent. And now God will bring death to the land of Egypt. But before He does, He will provide a means of salvation for His people. He told His people clearly that He would make a distinction between them and the Egyptians. And so that distinction will be He is giving them a means of salvation. He's giving them a way that their firstborn might be saved. And that's what we're going to read about today as we look at this account of the first Passover in Exodus chapter 12. This is God's holy word to us. And out of reverence for it, if you're able to, if you would stand as we read it this Lord's Day. And this is what God says to us, church. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head and its legs and its inner parts. And you shall, not, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning." Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. 
For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. If you would, pray with me, church. Father, as we consider this text, this text that may seem to many of us to be one that is, is brutal, this text that may seem even to be unfair, this striking down of the firstborn in Egypt, Father, would You help us to understand and would You help us to respond? Would You help us to see clearly the Gospel of Jesus Christ who is our Passover Lamb and the sacrifice that has been made that we might have life? We can only see this if You enable us to. So would You do that now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. A few of you may remember a, a board game several decades ago, that's why I say a few of you, but it was by Parker Brothers and it was called Masterpiece. Uh, this board game was basically made to uh, help people, I guess, to appreciate and understand art, but essentially what the goal of it was, was each player would try to purchase art that had value. They would try to trade for art. They'd try to be careful uh, not to get forgeries of art. And then at the end of the game, whoever had the greatest collection of masterpieces, well, they won the game. One man just up in the road in Indiana was playing this game several years ago when he noticed something that looked familiar to him. One of the cards, one of the, the things there in the game was a painting. And as he looked at that painting and then looked up at his wall, he couldn't help but notice a, a resemblance between this supposed masterpiece and something he had hanging on his wall. He didn't think much of what was on his wall because he had picked it up at the local thrift store. Now, he had a hole in his wall. and Rather than patch the hole, he just went and bought a cheap painting and put it over the hole. But as the days went on, it began to nag at him as he looked at that picture in the game and looked at that picture on the wall. So uh, finally, he took some pictures of it. He sent them around to some art museums and was a bit surprised to find out that what he had was no thrift store painting. What he had was actually a work of art. Over a hundred years old, he was even more surprised when he put it up for auction and it sold for $1.25 million dollars. That thrift store painting now hangs in the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston. When you think about this for a moment, for years people walked in and out of that apartment and didn't think anything of that painting on the wall. <laughs> there was no value to it. At least they didn't know of any value. And so they just walked past it, maybe glance at it. It was just there to cover up a hole. And today... Well, people walk into a museum in Houston, Texas, and they admire this painting. They see the value in this painting. It's the same painting. But in its context today, it is appreciated because its value is understood. When we look back on the Old Testament, we, friends, can appreciate the value. 
We have the whole picture. We have the whole story. We have the Gospels. We can read the Gospels and then go back and read the Old Testament in light of the Gospels and see the enormous value that's there. If you've been with us in our study of Exodus, hopefully you have seen that the picture of the Gospel of Jesus Christ that is there in Exodus. A people enslaved. Uh, People captured in slavery, unable to rescue themselves. God sends them a deliverer to bring them out of their slavery and take them to the promised land. Friends, that is the gospel. The scripture says we too are enslaved in our sin. We too need a deliverer, a rescuer, and that's exactly who Jesus is. And like Moses of old, Jesus is the greater Moses who has come and rescued us and he takes us to the promised land as well. We can see that picture because we understand the value. But for those living in the context of that time, I don't think they fully understood or appreciated all these things. For the Hebrew people, what they knew was God was bringing great judgment on Egypt. God was bringing calamity to Egypt. God was punishing Egypt for the way the Egyptians had treated the Hebrews for so long. But now, what God will do in this tenth and final plague is God is going to give them a clearer picture. What we can already clearly see in the other plagues, now they will clearly see in the tenth plague. Because in providing for them the Passover lamb, God will paint a picture of the Gospel that even for those in the context of the time, for the Hebrews, they they can begin to see and piece together. This is Showing us something that is to come. And so I hope as we walk through this passage, you will see the enormous value of it as we consider this lamb, this Passover lamb, and the significance that this lamb would play for God's people then and the significance of what it indicates now. We'll begin there with the first point in your outline. The the lamb very clearly was a symbol for God's people. The lamb was a symbol for God's people. God had already told Pharaoh through Moses that every firstborn in Egypt would die. Here in Exodus 11 and 12, he doesn't make a distinction whether that would be the firstborn male, the firstborn female. There is a hint there earlier in Exodus before any of the plagues come when God first sends Moses to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, let them go and serve me. He does say to him clearly then, You have struck Israel, my firstborn son. I will strike down your firstborn son. And so it may be that this threat will only affect the firstborn sons. It may be that it would affect the firstborn sons and daughters. We tend to imagine or think of this as babies, but the firstborn could have been an adult. My firstborn is about to go to college. Many of your firstborns have their own firstborns at this point. And so this is going to be a wide-reaching event. God says He will strike them down. And yet, in chapter 11, He said He would make a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Now, if you've been with us in the study of the plagues, you know this is common to the plagues. God often, when He would bring calamity and suffering through these plagues to the Egyptians, He would put a covering of protection over His people. 
so as these plagues of flies would swarm into the land of Egypt, he would protect the crops of his people. When the plague of utter darkness came over Egypt, where the Egyptians couldn't even see their hand in front of them, somehow, miraculously, God provides light for his people. God protected his people from the judgment he brought in Egypt. And again, he says he'll do that, but notice a difference here. Now, in order to be protected by God from the plague that is coming to Egypt, the people have to obey an instruction that God will give. And so God here is clearly giving an instruction in order for the firstborn among the Hebrews not to face death on this evening. They have to obey God and they have to obey Him specifically in regards to a Passover lamb and a meal that they're to have. And so God tells them here in Exodus chapter 12, they're to secure a lamb. He says they're to take that lamb from among their flock. They get it on the tenth day of the month. They keep it for four days. And then specifically, he says there in verses 5 and 6, it needed to be a pure lamb. A lamb without blemish. And then he goes on to tell them that they're going to kill that lamb, they're going to eat that meal, and they're going to do it with haste. But I want you to see here that this significance, that this symbol, that hopefully if you know anything about the gospel of Christ, this symbol that, that, that is so vivid. God says here very clearly, this is to be a lamb without blemish. It had to be a perfect offering. In fact, in the book of Leviticus, we read the Lord's further instructions to Moses. He says this, you shall not offer anything that has a blemish for it will not be acceptable for you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or the free will offering from the herd or from the flock to be accepted, it must be perfect. There should be no blemish in it. Animals blind or disabled or, or mutilated, if they have an itch or scabs, you shall not offer them to the Lord or give the Lord as a food offering on the altar. The, these... Offerings had to be perfect. They had to be without blemish. And if you know the gospel, then hopefully you know why. Because this offering, this, this Passover lamb, was to be a symbol to God's people from that day forward of a lamb that would come and would be a final sacrifice for their sins. This is why John the Baptist, as he sees Jesus coming there to him as he's baptizing in John chapter 129, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He, he is making a proclamation there. Here is the perfect sacrifice. Here is the one without blemish. The, the, the final sacrifice. And friends, I think for God's people, they, they would have been looking towards that because surely they saw the shortcomings of the Passover lamb and the sacrificial system they had been given. I mean, just consider for a moment that the frustration of being a father there, a mother there in one of these Hebrew homes, and being told, okay, you've got to go out among the herd, among the flock, and bring a lamb back without blemish. And so maybe you send your son or daughter out there, niece or nephew, and they go out and they bring one and say, well, what about this one? This one looks good. And initially, maybe it does, but you start to inspect it. Oh, it's got a scratch there. It's got a scar. No, take that one back. No, no get, go get me one that is perfect. 
So they go back out and they look for another one. They bring it back. Well, this, this one looks perfect, doesn't it? But then there's this big old scar on it. And they go back again and again and again. And every time they bring back a sacrifice that, that looks pretty good, but it's just not perfect. And so you offer your next to perfect Passover lamb. And then as this system would go on for centuries and centuries, you begin to see God revealing in His Word how, how this falls short. I mean, God had required blood sacrifices even before this. You go back to the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve sin in the garden. They try to cover themselves with leaves. But what does God do when He confronts them? Before He takes them out of the garden, He kills an animal and He covers them with the skin of that animal. An animal, blood, sacrifice was required when sin occurred. And we see it moving forward throughout the Old Testament. And yet we also see clearly, as I read earlier in Psalm 51, that God doesn't take pleasure in these sacrifices. You will not delight in sacrifice, David says in Psalm 51. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings. Isaiah tells the people, don't even bring any more vain offerings. And so on one hand, God says, okay, go find a perfect lamb and sacrifice it. And then at the same time, He says, I'm not going to delight in your sacrifices. Very clearly, God's people would begin to see this picture that the lamb is a symbol of something that is to come. And one day, God will provide the lamb. That's a lesson they had learned already a bit, wasn't it? Abraham takes Isaac Isaac says, Father, where is the sacrifice? He says, God will provide it, son. He goes up that mountain. He seeks to obey God. He lifts the knife to slay his own son as God had instructed. And what does God do? God provides the sacrifice. God provides. And what we see throughout His Word is He is pointing His people toward the, the perfect Lamb of God who would come. These these then are symbols of the one to come. But not just that. Point two there. The Lamb was also a substitute for God's people. God instructs His people put the Lamb's blood, verse 7, on the doorpost and on the lintel. The lintel would have been the wood there across the top, the doorpost to the side. And so on the lintel, on the post, put the blood. For a Hebrew home, unlike Perhaps many of our homes today where we have all kinds of entrances and exits and lock all the doors and, and there's so many uh, in the Hebrew home here and in their building here, they're likely to spend that, that one entrance in the front. And on that one entrance, God says, put the blood of the Lamb. And then He gives instructions about the meal. He says you're to come together as a family. In fact, if your family's not big enough to eat a whole lamb, uh, then, you know, go get another family. And, and if they're not big enough, you get enough families where you can all eat this lamb, get a lamb, and, and get the people together according to who can eat it. There's not to be anything left over. No, no leftovers here. He says, eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. This meal would be a reminder to God's people for centuries to come that the bitterness of their slavery is they ate these bitter herbs with it. But then notice this instruction. He says there in verse 11, 
Eat it with your belt fastened and sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand and you shall eat it in haste. Now this, this might not stand out to some of us. I mean, for some of you, you take your shoes off when you go in a house. Others of you, you keep them on. But, but in the Hebrew context, in the ancient world, you, you didn't wear your sandals in the house. You took your sandals off as you went into the house. And, and, and there was a, a particular order of things. And as you reclined down there on the floor to sit at that table and eat, you might take that belt off entirely, loosen up that belt. You certainly wouldn't have a staff in your hand. You would have left it outside. Maybe sat it at the entrance as you came in. And so if somebody came to sit down to eat a meal, well, they had their staff in their hand and their, their belt around their waist, their shoes and their feet. That, that might be a bit insulting to the family. having dinner last night and I uh, I'm never going to have a cooking show or anything but I'd, I'd made a little meal and I was proud of myself and getting everything there on the table and looked down and one of my children had a big bag of ruffles and just was dumping it out on their plate not going to say who it is but I said boy I just made dinner for you. Why did you pour a big bag of ruffles out on your plate? Well, Dad, I was hungry. Dad, I went, you know. I said, boy, don't you ever go in somebody's house and dump a big bag of ruffles on the table. Eat what they make you. Of course, when he was done eating what I made him, he said, well, can I get the ruffles now? You know, I'm still hungry. You know, there's all kinds of things that we might consider uh, rude or insulting or customs that don't quite fit in and don't jive with what we were raised with. But, but here, this, this would have been out of the ordinary. And what God is doing is He's helping His people to see something. He says, have the staff in your hand, have your belt fastened, have your sandals on your feet, because I want you to eat this in haste. See, for the Hebrews, like many of us today, the meal was often the event. I mean, think about it. What, what is the event of Thanksgiving? It's a meal, you know? I mean, there are other things we associate with it, but often it will center around the meal. So when you get a Thanksgiving, a Thanksgiving card or there's a Thanksgiving advertisement, what's usually in it? A meal. Because things center around the meal. Perhaps today, for some of you, you're gathering with family around a meal. Maybe you don't want me to talk about it right now because it's too close to that meal time and you're getting hungry. But we often focus on the meal as the event. And then when the meal's over, what do we do? Well, I got the lazy boy. And you got the couch. And I think there's a spare bed somewhere and we can just all lay down and take a nap. But, but God is helping His people here to see that the meal is not the event. The meal is preparing us for the event. And what he's telling his people is this. It's time to go. For hundreds of years, God's people have been enslaved. It wasn't always that way. You look back in the Scripture and you can see very clearly how God's people ended up in Egypt. If you were with us as we studied Genesis, you know how God's people ended up in Egypt. 
God brings this great famine to the land. God had raised up another deliverer there in Egypt, another picture of Christ in Joseph. Joseph, of course, went through all this suffering and calamity, but God was using it for a greater glory. He has him there in Egypt. He stored up the food. Now God uses Joseph to increase Pharaoh's kingdom. Pharaoh didn't own all the land then, but that's how he got it. Because the Egyptians would come and say, well, we need food. And Joseph would say, well, you got land, so you give Pharaoh the land and I'll give you some of Pharaoh's food. But it's not just the Egyptians that are preserved. Then also the Israelites. Because they're going to die. And so just think about this for a moment. In the history of God's people, that the reason you're in Egypt is because Egypt was the nation through which God blessed you. You would have died where you were. But God brought you and your people there to Egypt and He preserved and protected and provided. In fact, when you read about the early days of the Hebrews in Egypt, it's not slavery. It's a bit of celebrity. Pharaoh loved Joseph. Joseph had gotten Pharaoh all his land. In fact, when Joseph is going to be buried back in his homeland, Pharaoh seems this whole delegation with him. Joseph was honored in Pharaoh's house. God's people were honored in Pharaoh's house. And so if you're one of the Hebrews during that time, you're probably thinking, thank you Lord for providing this blessed nation for us. And for giving us favor with these rulers and these kings and this government. And now, centuries have passed. And now, rather than getting on their knees and thanking God for this blessed nation, Hebrew parents would get on their knees and they would pray, God, we need your help. Our nation doesn't seem so blessed anymore. Our rulers have turned from you. But, but sadly, I think what so many of them probably prayed, and we see an indication of this even in Exodus, is they probably cried out to God, God, would you just give us a better leader? God, would you just put things back the way they once were when Egypt was such a blessed nation to live in, when our leaders honored you? And I think they probably prayed that because we see in the book of Exodus when things get really bad for them, rather than crying out to God, what do they do? They go to Pharaoh. They, they think an earthly king is going to fix this. But here's the point. God had something greater for His people. God was going to give them a king, but He was going to be so much greater than an earthly king. And God was going to give them a nation, but it was going to be so much greater than a blessed Egypt. God was going to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. God was going to give them a land of promise. And ultimately what He's doing is preparing His people for future generations to take their eyes off of this world and to eat this meal with haste so they might look forward to a world to come. And so you fast forward that to our church today. We have a meal together as well, don't we? It's the Lord's Supper. And when we have the Lord's Supper, God is reminding us not of a lamb that would come, but He's reminding us of a lamb that did come. 
And he's reminding us of a sacrifice that was made that we might have eternal life in Christ Jesus. And he also wants us to eat it with haste. He says, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Until He returns. When we take that bread and we take that cup, Christian, we take it with the reminder that this isn't our home either. And that the kings of this earth will rise and they will fall. But we serve a king who reigns forever. Many of you are struggling right now because you have your eyes on the wrong king. God has called us to look ahead, brothers and sisters. And He's reminded us in His Word that there have been far more wicked times than we are in today, that they will come and go and kingdoms will rise and fall. And whether He gives us another blessed Egypt or He gives us years of persecution and slavery, this is not the end. And He has called us to eat our meal with haste and to have our belts fastened and to have our staffs in hand and to have our sandals in our feet to remind us we are strangers in a strange land and we are just passing through. But He has prepared for us an eternal kingdom and that kingdom is secured through a Lamb who was our substitute. So verse 12 here, He tells the Hebrews, after He gives them instruction about this meal and eat it in haste, He says, I will pass through the land in Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments for I am the Lord. God is going to bring death to every single home. And you might think, well, wait, no, no. Isn't He just going to bring it to the Egyptians? No. God is going to bring death to every single home. And that death will either be in the form of their firstborn child dying or that death will be in the form of the Passover lamb being slayed. But God requires death. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. And again, I mentioned this last week. I've mentioned it many times. I'll mention it again. That, that might seem extreme to you. You might think, my goodness, but... But children, again, these may not have all been children. They might have been grown children. They were just the firstborns. But man, that's, that's a lot, isn't it? But go back to the garden. Adam didn't beat his wife. Eve didn't break off a limb from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and just whack him across the head with it. They took a bite from a fruit. And God was just in that moment at removing them from the garden and bringing judgment on them. Just as He is just in this moment that we deserve His judgment as well. But in His grace and in His goodness, He told them, as He's told us, that He would provide a substitute. And here we see a picture of that substitute. So death will come to every household in Egypt. That death will either be the firstborn or it will be the perfect lamb. It is a picture for us of the Gospel of Jesus Christ and it presents the question to us then, what are we ultimately trusting in? Because for so many of us, 
No matter how many sermons we hear, no matter how many gospel tracts we read, no matter how much we have this ingrained into our mind and our hearts, we still wrestle with this notion that one day we will stand before a holy God and He will say, let's talk about your life. Let me play a film of your life, Richard. And here i got this set of scales over here, and here's your good and here's your bad. And we have this idea somehow that God's going to weigh our good against our bad, and on top of that, that we're going to come out okay. Now, now one, that there's nothing in the Scripture that talks about God putting scales out, weighing our good or our bad. The, the only thing in the Scripture that indicates even that God judges about our works is for those who are without Christ, you know? Revelation says it really clearly. They'll they'll be judged by their works because they were trusting in their works for salvation. So let's say that's you this morning. You're saying, yep, that's me. I'm trusting my works. I'm a good person. I do good stuff. If everything you ever thought or said was exposed, how do you measure up then? I realize there's been a lot of discussion in recent days about people's conversations being recorded. Let's bring this home. If everything you ever thought was recorded and broadcast this morning, how bad would everyone in this room want to beat the mess out of you? I'm serious. Because if you knew what I thought, you'd want to beat the mess out of me right now. Because this is messed up. And this is messed up. The world says, trust your heart. The Scripture says, your heart is garbage. (laughs) Yet trust your heart and wreck your family. Trust your heart and do wickedness. That's where your heart leads you. Well, no, Pastor, I've got a good heart. Really? Because the Scripture says there's none good, not even one. So you're not arguing with me. You're arguing with the Creator of the universe. But no, Pastor, I'm still pretty good. Okay, then, then really, really, if we could record everything you've ever thought or said and broadcast it this morning, you're comfortable with that? Everything you've ever looked at? Everything you've ever even considered in your darkest moments? No, our, our thoughts and our heart and our minds, our actions, our words, they condemn us. And if that's what you're trusting in this morning, Oh, how miserable you must be. To think that somehow you're going to lay your head on that pillow at night and rest confident in your words and action and thoughts and deeds. The Scripture says the wages of sin is death. And God has given us not only this symbol of the Lamb, He has given us a substitute in His Son, the Lamb of God. And we can now rest secure because of that. So let me paint you a different picture. Point three, the blood of the Lamb secured and sealed God's people. The, the, the destroyer, the Scripture tells us, the Lord Himself, the destroyer, the death angel, angel death, however you want to refer to it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to sweep through Egypt. Verse 13, but God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Oh, what security there is there, friend. 
what hope there is there in the blood. Don Carson, some of you know that name, great theologian, commentator, pastor. He, better than any I've heard, did a great job, and I'll, I'll try to do it justice. He gave a great example of this passage in reference to the security it should give us. He said it this way. He said, picture you have two Hebrews. They, they've heeded God's warning. They've taken this instruction. They've, they've, they've slaughtered the lamb. They've had the meal. They've put the blood on the lintel and the doorpost. And now, they're anticipating the destroyer, the, the, the death angel. They're sitting there talking. And one says to the other, Are you nervous at all about what's going to happen tonight? Now the response, well, not really. I mean, God told us through Moses what we're to do. He told us to, to take the lamb and to get one without blemish and, and, and to get it when it's ten days old and keep it four days and then to slaughter it and to prepare this meal and to eat everything that night and to wear our belts and our staffs and our sandals and then to put the blood on the lintel and the doorpost. I mean, God told us what to do and you did that, right? You know? Nothing to worry about. First man hesitates to response. Why? Well, yeah, of course I did that. You know, yeah, we had the meal and we we put the look. You can see the blood's right there. I've got the blood out. Of course I did that. But aren't you no nervous at all? I mean, there's been a lot of crazy stuff going around here. I mean, the blood and. The river turned into blood and flies and frogs and darkness and all these things. And now Moses has gone to Pharaoh and said that the firstborn is going to die. I love my son. You know? You've got several kids. You'll maybe be okay. I've got one. And if my son dies, what do I have? So I'm I'm nervous. And I'm scared. The other man looks him in the eyes and says, I'm not. Because I trust in the promises of God. Bring it on. Then Carson asked this question. That night, the angel of death swept through the land. Which one of these two men lost his son? Neither. Not neither of them lost their son. Because the angel did not pass over them based on the intensity of their faith, based on how much faith they had, based on how strong their faith was, based on how confident they were even in that faith. The angel of death passed over based on the blood of the Lamb on their doorpost. And if they were covered by the blood of the Lamb, it did not matter how much faith they had. It mattered what their faith was in. Friend, you will have and likely have had days where you will lay your head down at night and wonder, am I even saved? I say I'm a Christian. I understand the Gospel. I repented and responded. And yet I just said what I said I would never say again. And I just did what I said I would never do again. 
And as those words came out, I wanted to grab them back in. But I just kept going with them. (laughs) And you'll lay your head down at night, and as you consider the wickedness of your life, you will be tempted to wonder, am I even saved? And the answer is, if you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ, and in the blood of the Lamb, Yes, indeed you are. And you need not wonder or doubt. And that is what we sing about when we gather here each Lord's Day. My hope is built on nothing less than my works. (laughs) No. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And if we trust in anything else, Our hope and our trust and our faith is in vain, friend. And so what we have before us is a reminder to us that just as the death angel passes over and God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt, we have a word from God that says one day we will stand before Him, not in judgment, but in victory. Because He has already passed judgment on His Son on the cross. And He has poured out His wrath on Him for our sin. And if we are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, God does not look and say, oh my goodness, there's that pastor of Bloomfield Baptist Church, that miserable, wretched fool. How many times have I showed Him my grace and He's just abused it? How many times have I reminded Him of my Word only to see Him walk away from it. How many times has He said and done and acted in ways contrary to My Word? What will I do with Him? God will see me and He will see His Son washed, cleansed, and covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And He will say, because of what Christ did, well done, My good and faithful servant. Friends, we can have that hope and we can have that security. But if you are trusting in your merit or your works today, you will never have any of that. And so God's invitation to you is His invitation to His people. Be saved. (laughs) Obey. Respond to the Gospel which says if you will confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved and all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I don't care what you've done or where you've been or how messed up you are. God can and will and has saved. And God can save you. Will you turn from your sin and will you trust in Him? If you have done that and you wrestle and you struggle today with doubt and worry and fear, you can lay those things aside and rest confident in the hope that is in Christ. Our hope, our trust, our faith is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So won't you be covered by that today? Won't you embrace that today? If you would stand and pray with me. Father, I...
I thank you for the, the, the value that we have before us. The, the enormous weight and value of the Gospel. And the hope we can have. Lord, we are so tempted to put our hope and our trust in other people and other things and jobs and politicians. All kinds of things. Would you help us, Lord, in this moment to, to place our hope and our trust fully in you? Lord, we are so easily swayed by the, the news of the day and we worry and we get anxious and we fret and we fear. Lord, would you remind us of your promise that for those who have trusted in Christ, we are your children and you've guaranteed us a future. We have an eternal king and an eternal home, a new heaven and a new earth. Lord, for those who are struggling in this earth today with suffering and pain and sickness and death, would you remind us, Lord, that there is a day near coming when there is no more sickness or death, when you will wipe every tear from our eyes and where we will be eternally with Christ our King and those who trust in you. Lord, help us to put our hope in these things and our trust in these things and to leave behind everything else. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.